0: write your name in this Bible and call it your own. It's our gift to you. Um, and uh, we'd love for you to uh, just take that as a, as a special gift from us to you. Um, last week, we finished up a study, a series called Economic Atheists," and we looked at how is it that we, could, that we could follow up our talk about following Jesus with our actions of following Jesus? How do we do that in our economic life? How do we do that in our, in just our whole life? And, um, and, um, and really what we did is we unpacked this whole idea. And at the very end of it, I talked on Sabbath. And Sabbath is sort of in the context of work and how important it is to rest. How sometimes the speed of relationships move at a walk, but the, the speed of work moves at a run. And how important it is to go back to that walk. And one of the things I realized is, Man, that was so practical, but it wasn't very spiritual. And, and I just, as I'm writing that sermon, this happens in a lot of sermons with me, by the way. I'm writing the sermon, and I've got side notes happening. And I'm like, all of a sudden I go, well, there's a series there. <laughs> and so I just wanted to take the next couple of weeks and talk about Sabbath and the importance that it is. And just the, the deep care that God has for it. I mean, it is the fourth commandment after all, right? We're going to talk about that in a moment. Before we do, I want to talk about this principle in sociology called the paradox of progress. All of you have experienced the paradox of progress. There, there's historians who say there are three great moments in American life that changed. One day, in one moment, they changed everything for American life. One was the dropping of the atomic bomb. Changed everything from there on out. We're in the atomic age, changed warfare, changed the world. The next was 9 11 took us away from state enemies to, to now this reality of terrorism and people acting in asymmetrical ways and, and this scary way of life. And the third one that historians say changed the world in a moment was in 2006. Can anybody guess what happened in 2006? Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. And, and you're like, Really? The iPhone is on the same level uh, of the atomic bomb and of 9-11. But historians say, yeah, literally, the world has changed. And we know this, right? Because in 2006, you didn't walk around to see people doing this. Getting hit by a car while watching a YouTube video was not a danger in 2006, like it is now. I mean, in, in 2006, when he unveiled the iPhone, people even laughed at it, but it changed everything. It changed everything. Everybody now, almost everybody, I'm still in awe of people who still have flip phones. Like, I am envious of you. Like, I almost want to just dodge mine away and get a flip phone sometimes. But there's this thing called the paradox of progress. I want to talk about what that is. When I was a kid, I I saw the paradox of progress work out. We would go on these two-week-long vacation slash, like, road trips and we'd go to Wyoming, and we'd see all the national parks and all that stuff. And before cell phones, my dad would just take a good supply of quarters, and, and he would call into work and just check messages, right? That's what, all he would do. That's what kind of he was required to do for work. And, and largely, when you hung up that payphone, you hung up on work, and you were done. Does anybody remember those great days? Those were like, man, if we just had those days back, those were awesome. And, and, and then a little on, a while later, my dad got this huge brick of a phone, Right? And, and we would get out like, Wyoming and into a city, and all of a sudden, he'd have cell phone reception, and, like, you couldn't answer it, it cost you $2 trillion. And you remember those times, right? The, you, a phone call was, like, $80 a minute, and they took your first child. That's what my brother is. He still belongs to the phone companies. They, <laughs> phone calls were super expensive, but all of a sudden, you were like, wow, I'm untethered. I could get these calls. I could do this. This is amazing. And then you got a work call at 9 p.m. and you're like, what are you doing calling me at home? You're like, you've invaded my life, but all of a sudden you agreed to it because you took the cell phone, right? The paradox of progress is that life is going to get so much easier with this, but really, really you get so much more weighed down by this. That's the paradox of progress. And we've seen that more and more with things like the iPad, the iPhone, and new technology that's come out. There was a study that came out this summer that called the iPad, the iPhone, and any digital screen device for kids under the age of 15, they called it digital heroin. And they said, we've studied the brain, and it has the same addictive qualities as heroin. Can you believe that? This is is why in our home we instituted the Screen Free Saturdays. Because we let them do it a little bit, but it's like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we let our kids do a little bit of heroin, right? No, we let our kids do a little bit of the iPad and stuff like that to, in times where we're busy and like Bible studies, we're like, go in the other room and use the iPad. But it, we're trying to figure out, it's just part of our life. They need to know it. They need to know how to use it. They need to do that. But we don't want them so tethered to it. We don't want them to be zombies like everybody else walking around being zombies. This is the paradox of progress, that you think you're making progress by these great new inventions, but these great new technology, but really it's weighing you down. I loved being in Cuba a couple years back. There was no cell phone reception. I love going to Hume Lake, no cell phone reception. I remember coming back from a staff retreat at Hume Lake and my phone popped up and it said Michael Jackson had died, but that was like three days earlier. And I was like the last man on earth to know this. And, And I'm sorry about Michael Jackson and stuff, but it I remember thinking in that moment, I love that I'm the last person to know this right now. But the paradox of progress is literally that you think this is going to be easier, but you get more weighed down. We think we're going to have less work, but really work hits us at 9, 10, 11 o'clock. And it's really hard to set parameters on the whole digital life now. In this world, especially now that we're moving towards Thanksgiving and Christmas, It gets busier and busier and busier. I don't think I've talked to anybody recently where I said, how are you doing? And they haven't said, oh, my life is just so busy right now. Everybody is just so busy. But God, in his wisdom, makes provisions for rest. And and sometimes we go, I just don't need to obey that. I, I don't need to do that. But I think some of these are really, really important. So before we get into it, I want to touch on there's two basic Christian positions on this. One in which our church does not fall into and one in which our church does fall into. So there's, there's this new movement of, of Christian churches, which is actually is really cool. I love reading their research and studying from them, and, but I don't always hold all the ideas. And the, there's this new movement called the Jewish Roots Movement, which is really cool, but they kind of teach that you need to have strict observance of the Sabbath. That even though that all the stuff that says in the New Testament that, that Jesus actually kept the Sabbath and we ought to keep it too. And they teach a little bit more of what we'd call like strict adherence. Like you have to do it. And then they would say even that's the seventh day, which means Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. But, you know, we would teach, well, they, are, they argue that's when the Sabbath is, but there's this other side that most evangelical Protestants fall, and we say that the Sabbath is the Lord's day. And there's precedent for this in Scripture too. So John the Apostle, he's um, chapter 1 of the book of Revelation He's just sort of saying in a note, I was um, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which is a Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of resurrection of Jesus. We know the early church started meeting on Sundays. In many cases, they were excluded on Saturdays from meeting in the synagogue, and they started meeting on Sundays. And they started observing a day of rest or the Sabbath then on Sundays. And so what I would just say to you today, maybe some of you are like, I didn't even know that. Just tell me what it means. But if you're wrestling with this, like, man, do I need to keep it on a certain day a week or not, I wanted to go into that a little bit today and talk about the freedom that we have in the Sabbath. So which day is it? I don't necessarily think it's strict adherence to a day. I think there's a spirit of the law, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, For us, we say Sunday, and I think it's wise in our world to say, hey, take a day of rest on Sunday. That for most people, 90% of people, that is good. But some people say, hey, the fourth commandment, that's totally invalid. There's other Christian churches out there who say, we don't need to follow the Sabbath at all. Well, I would just say that this if you're in that camp. We're going to put on the screen Matthew 12:8. There's no other one of the Ten Commandments that Jesus said, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There's no other Ten Commandments that Jesus said, I'm the Lord of. This is the only one. So is it important to Jesus on this? Yeah, I think it is. And I think there's great stuff that we can learn about this. The reason why this debate is so important in your life and, and mine is because it challenges the way that we honor God in a bunch of other ways. So if you fall into this strict adherence group, the other thing that you would have to fall in on is uh, worshiping at the temple three, di- three days a year. Um, going, following all the festivals, adhering to food laws, practicing circumcision on the eighth day. You have to stop wearing clothes made of two threads. You have to have two kitchens in your house so you could eat kosher. I mean, there's a lot of other things that you've got to follow if you're on that path. But I think Jesus came to teach the intent behind the law and help us to live that. So turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. We're going to talk about this for a moment, where Jesus talks about the law to a concerned group of people that, that he they were concerned that he was going to break the law. They were concerned that he didn't care for it or had no regard for it anymore. And so here's what he says. And it'll be up on the screen if you're if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But Matthew 5, 17 through 18 says this Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, of, of the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Did you catch that? Your first fill in this morning is, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So are the Ten Commandments still valid? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are, are there things in, in the Old Testament that are still valid? Absolutely. But Jesus came really to to help us live into the intent of these. Right? This is what Jesus was talking about. He said, you've heard do not murder. What I really meant by that is whenever you call your brother a rocker or you're angry with them, it's like murder in my book. Oh, man. Stop it, Jesus. That's too hard. And, and, and then he says, you know, you, you've heard it says do not commit adultery, but what The intent behind that is when you lust after your neighbor's wife, you really have committed adultery already. So he came to show us the intent behind his laws and to help us live into them. So we see Jesus fulfilling these along the way. And there's one spot where Jesus, right in the very beginning of his ministry, he fulfills this whole Sabbath thing. And a lot of us just pass through it and we don't even recognize it as a Sabbath passage. But turn with me to Luke chapter 4. So there's Matthew, Mark, Luke. So if you're already in Matthew, just two more books over to Luke chapter 4. Jesus wants to help you um, put him first in your life. And when you put God first in your life, you you usually will satisfy the intent of the law as well. So the reason why I practice the Sabbath, I, I do, I try and practice Sabbath. In fact, my mom called me out on it this week. She was like, "What are you teaching on?" I told her the Sabbath, and she's like, "So you're not keeping it this week then, huh?" And this week, I don't be honest with you, I had a busy week and did not make provision for it, and and I hate that because I'm always more tired. I never feel like I'm on top of my game when I do that. But um, but. uh, but, uh the idea is the reason why I don't practice like a traditional sundown to sun up and eat foods, all this stuff, is because I understand the intent of the Sabbath. is to rest in the presence of the Lord. So turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Jesus lived in the time where you practice a customary Sabbath on Saturdays. And he went there as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke woe of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Let's pause there. Later on, they'll try and throw him off a cliff because he actually gets rather insulting with them. Um, But that's a sermon for a different day. But he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And how was this so? I mean, literally, this this verse in Isaiah, how was this fulfilled in his hearing? I want to latch on to one little phrase here in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What was that? The year of the Lord's favor. So as you might know, the Sabbath is one day a week. It's every Saturday, but, but every seven days. And then every seven years, there's a Sabbath year. And then every sets of seven years were followed by something called the Jubilee year. And it was called the Sabbath of Sabbaths or the year of the Lord's favor. And so what Jesus is saying here to these people in this first sermon is is he is saying, I want you to understand that literally the fulfillment of the Sabbath is standing before you. I am the Sabbath. I am rest. I am God. You could rest in my presence. I am all of that. It was a year of reconciling debts. It was a year of justice. It was a year of clearing out debts. It was a year of the Lord's favor, really. It was... It's a year of proclaiming how great God has been. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the Sabbath of Sabbaths. That when you have me in your presence, you are sabbathing, You are resting. I am here. He says this on the Sabbath. And he says the year of the Lord's favor is fulfilled literally in him. So one of the ways to find out, like, what does this all mean? Is to sort of ask the question of Scripture. Well, what does Jesus do on the Sabbath? All through the Sabbath. And and the answer really is he gets in trouble. Jesus gets in trouble. Every Sabbath he's there, he gets in trouble, including this one. Because then he begins to talk about stories, right? He begins to tell stories. The widow at Zephrath, she was fed. And and, um, he begins to tell all these other stories, basically saying that God cares after the Gentiles. He healed the the servant of Naaman and the Syrians. He did all that to Gentiles, to people who weren't Jews. That's what the year of the Lord's favor looks like. And they wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. They tried to execute him then, but they couldn't do it. So Jesus is up to something here. And so in your bulletins, I think I did this in your bulletins, we'll see. But in your bulletins, I got this list of what did Jesus do on the Sabbath. Because I wanted you to see this. First, he casts out demons in, in Mark 1.21. He heals scoliosis. That's pretty cool. He shrinks swelling of the body. He cures blindness. He feeds the hungry. He unlocks the paralysis of a hand. He lowers a high fever. So the minute that Jesus steps on the scene, he not only declares himself Lord of the Sabbath, he not only calls himself the Sabbath, but he shows his true nature in the way things are supposed to be on the Sabbath. This time, Of healing. This time of who is God. This time of defeating evil. He casts out a demon on the Sabbath, he defeats evil. This time of healing. We have to remember that stopping and resting is a reminder that we need to heal from the week, it's a reminder that we need to heal from all sorts of hurts and all sorts of things that happen during that week. And maybe just rest because you're physically tired. Curing blindness. Seeing with God's eyes. That's, we know the story in the book of John. It wasn't necessarily about the fact that the guy could see again. It was the fact that he saw now in a new spiritual reality. He saw with God's eyes. That's what the Sabbath is for. Is restore your vision to see the world the way God sees the world. Recognizing God as your provider. God feeds the hungry on the Sabbath. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. The Sabbath rests, makes it possible to work again. The man with the shriveled hand, this is a symbol of work. Your hands are important for work, right? And they've always been an important symbol for work. And so when Jesus restored the man with the shriveled hand, he didn't just fix his hand, he restored his livelihood. Because you're in my presence, the presence of the true Sabbath, you could go work again. And there's these, just this whole list of things that they're filling the blanks. I just wanted to throw in there about the Sabbath. It just sort of helps you to understand, what do I do on the Sabbath? What do I do? How do I Sabbath personally? So I just want to give you a list of biblical principles that simply say, how do I Sabbath? The Sabbath puts God first. And that's found in Exodus 20, um, verse 8 through 11. Now, I shouldn't even have to put this down right? I shouldn't even have to put this down. And, but sometimes we just miss the obvious. The Sabbath is all about what the Lord has done for you. The Sabbath is all about Jesus. And these times, you, you're to remember what you're saved from. You're to remember that God is your God and that He has provided for you. You put Him first. So you put Him first in your family. You put Him first in your, in, your, in your relationship. You put Him first with your kids. You put Him first before you eat. You put Him first before you do anything. And it's a day dedicated to the Lord. You put Him first. Next fill in. The Sabbath helps us to prioritize people. The Sabbath helps us to prioritize people. This story in Luke, I, I just want to go over it real quick. It's just six verses. It'll be up on the screen. Luke thirteen ten through 6. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, woman, You are set free from your infirmary. Then he put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out and give water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? From what bound her? When he said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Do you see Jesus' point here? He's saying, you will feed your ox and donkey water on the Sabbath. You'll prioritize them over people. You, the, you, you said, go come back another day to be healed because you've set up this strict adherence to laws that don't allow you to prioritize people. Do we put people first on the Sabbath? Do we care for other people? I think it's important to do that. I, I think maybe certainly we, we have a long list of prayer items today. Maybe that just becomes part of your Sabbath ritual for you is that you begin to pray over things that, that are in the church or in your family or in your life, that, that you begin to pray over those things. You care for people. Maybe it's a hospital visit. Oh, that's work. No, it's not. I mean, I I, I have this, this tension always as a pastor. Of what, what's my work and what's my calling? My work is like administering the life of the church and making sure that it all works together and there, all the emails and stuff like that. That feels like work. This doesn't feel like work. Going to hospital visits, that doesn't feel like work to me. That I love that. And, and so... To me, it's, there's always this tension of what's work and, and all that stuff. So I'm uh, really thrilled to have a job that is also a calling. So, um, but Jesus' point here is you need to prioritize people over other things. You put other things first, prioritize people. God first, then people. The next line um, The Sabbath is not slavish adherence to the law, but rest in God's presence. It's not slavish adherence to the law but rest in God's presence. The Sabbath is meant to be a refuge, not a prison. It is always meant to be that way. That's why I give myself the freedom to take, um, basically to practice a day of rest on a Friday or a Saturday. And that's why I give myself um, just this, because this, it's not slavish adherence. It's not like I have to do it this way or else God is going to strike me down. We, we, we tend to want to legalize things and make a stritten set of laws to make us feel better, but that's not the way to do it. It's meant to be a refuge and not a prison. I give myself permission to take a nap. Can I do that on a work day? Absolutely not. Like, literally, if I'm like, oh, man, my eyes are getting tired. It's time for a nap. I run to Starbucks, (laughs) you know, because I have more work to do. Rest for me is also exercise. A lot of people, you know, if you have a job where you work outside and, and you work hard, then rest for you might actually look like rest. But for me, like, I wake up in the middle of the night imagining a debate between John Calvin and John Wesley on eternal security, you know, because that my mind is running. And for me, exercise helps me quiet my brain <laughs> because I think about these things all the time. Or I wonder, like, how they, would differ- how they would differentiate between a particular point in the book of Revelation. My mind just runs, and so for me, exercise sort of quiets my brain. But like I said, if you have a physical job where you work super hard, because my job is like, here's what it looks like. Go sit in front of a computer, go sit in front of a person, go drive in a car. It's sitting all day long. It's just sitting. And so I've got to get out and do something because the exercise makes me feel rested. It's a little paradoxical. Next line. The Sabbath trains us to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Now, in order to have a lifestyle of Sabbath and rest, we absolutely need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of our lives. Hurry is the enemy of rest. Now, don't hear me wrong. I, no one go to work tomorrow and your, your boss will be like, hey, Frank, we need that report by the end of the day. Don't, don't tell your boss, my pastor said to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. So how about the end of the week? No, Remember what we taught last week. Work happens at a run. Rest happens at a walk. So if you're at work, you better work it. But to ruthlessly eliminate hurry, the problem is we take that run of work into the pace of every other part of life. We take the run into everything. What I'm saying is that we need to look at Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus was talking and he said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble at heart and you will find rest in your soul for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus is saying. When your life is organized around me, I will give you the pace at which to walk through life. What they, under, what they would have understood back then In the first century world, this is an agriculture community. That you take the old oxen, the oxen that have been plowing the fields for years, and you put it with that new oxen that wants to run everywhere, that oxen that wants to tire himself out. And that old oxen will literally walk that oxen through life and show them the pace of how to work in a sustainable way. Jesus is using the same analogy Take on my yoke. When you're walking with Jesus, you're never alone. If, if you do this, if you do Matthew 11, and, and, and you take on the yoke of Jesus, you're never alone. You're always walking with the master right next to you, showing you the pace of life, giving you rest, even in your workday, even in the hectic times of your workday. When you walk with Jesus through those, he will always give you rest. How else? How do we practically eliminate hurry out of our lives? Because like I said, hurry from work gets carried over into life, and it can ruin relationships. How do we illuminate hurry? I, I just got a few suggestions, and these are agony for me. I've got to just be honest with you. Drive behind the slow driver. Oh, Lord help me if I ever decide to do that. I've, like, I've tried. I'm like, I'm trying to eliminate hurry. I'm trying to create a discipline in my life from not being hurried. Go to the long lane at the checkout. Oh, that just, and then someone wants to write a check, and you're like, what's a check? Anyways, go to Disneyland in the summer. There's a good one. You want to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Going where you don't need to be hurried. Why is this so key? A hurried soul will never be at rest with God. It will always want the next thing is so key because when you get into that time of bible study you'll be thinking about the four or five emails that you got to do. It's so key because when you get in that time of prayer you'll be praying before the lord and you'll be like, "Oh, I got to change, I got to move this from the freezer, I got to thaw the chicken." You know, it, it's so important because when you eliminate hurry out of your life, you can actually practice patience before the lord and don't miss this. This is so important. Patience is so important because patience is what makes your prayer life productive. Patience is what, you might want to write that down. Patience is what makes your prayer life productive. Why? Because you're willing to go before the Lord over and over and over and over again the way Jesus tells us to in Luke 18, to continually bring it before the Lord. If you're not a patient person and you have an ADD prayer life, you might bring it up once and move on. When you ruthlessly eliminate hurry out of your life, it gives you that time to sit with the master and to pray and focus on what God wants. That's what it does. Last point. The Sabbath trains us for eternity. And this is kind of Hebrews 4, all of it. Um, So I'm not necessarily going to read the passage out of here, but just go home and look it up when you have the chance. Hebrews 4 makes the point that If you're not practicing a regular rest with Jesus now, how will you enter into his eternal rest? In fact, that's what heaven is called in the book of Hebrews, by the way. That's what the author of Hebrews calls heaven, is rest with the Lord. And so don't you think he wants us to practice it now so that we could practice it with him in eternity? Enter into his eternal rest. Sabbath is intended to give you a taste of the joy of eternity with Jesus. Sabbath rest is intended to be a gift that's experienced by you. And you know the way that that you tithe 10% of your income, what it really does is this. In all practicality senses, in in all the senses of practicality, it makes you look at the other 90% of your income, right? And say, do I really want to spend my money this way? Do I really need that? When you tithe, there's a real practical element of that. And when you take one day a week out of your massively busy schedule and say, nope, this day is honored, this day is for the Lord, I am going to rest before God on this day, what it really does is it makes you look at those other six days in a real practical way and say, do I really need this in my life? Do I really need that? If I can't rest, do I really need all this other stuff? If it's going to cause me to be busy, do I need it? It really helps you look at your life in a practical way. And I want to invite you, a couple weeks ago in the the Economic Atheist series, I gave you a challenge, and I simply said this. I said, listen, I I think that if you honor God with your income, with your tithing, with your first fruits, we talked a lot about that, that he'll honor what he says. Uh, He says, test me on this. Just go ahead and test me. Test me and see what I do. You know, it doesn't say that anywhere about the Sabbath in the Bible. So I'm not going to tell you it says that in the Bible somewhere. But I want to tell you what I've experienced. What I've experienced is that when I do that, when I honor God with my time, there's time for everything else. When I honor God by setting a day aside, and I want to just encourage you Sunday, because most people work Monday through Friday 9 to 5, and if that's your regular schedule, Sunday's perfect to rest for work. I just want to encourage you to set that time aside and say, this day is dedicated to the Lord. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to, you know, for some of you who, like me, your work is sitting on your rear all day and on the computer and talking to people and all that stuff. For some of you, yard work might put your mind at ease. And your wife just went, bam, right? For some of you, that might be the case. But for others of you who work all week and and you use your hands, don't do yard work. Because that's not going to help you rest at all. For me, it's the soothing motion of, like, washing a car. I don't know what it is, but it just puts my mind at rest. So I want to encourage you to set that one day aside because it's going to help you take a hard look at the rest of your week. Next week when we come back to this series, there's one other giant purpose of the Sabbath that I want to talk about, and it's all through the Old Testament and the New. So we're going to look at that next week. So before we um, close today, I want to invite the band to come up. I want to challenge you to practice this rest. And we're going to move into a time now of communion. On the Lord's Day, when they met and gathered, they literally met and gathered for this meal. They met and gathered to take communion together, to honor God. And they remembered what Jesus said to them on that last day, on on that Passover night, that Jesus took the body He took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. And he passed it out to his disciples and he said, take and eat. You have to remember what I did. You've got to remember. And and then he took the cup and he he passed it around and he said, this is a new covenant of my blood which is poured out for your sins. And he gave it. And and we have this gift from God. This means of grace where God says, I'm going to take this on a regular basis as a church because it reminds you of what i've done and it sets your disposition towards me so as the ushers come forward I want to invite you the first sunday of the month we take this as a community just like every other church around the world takes this all together I want to invite you to hold on to this and at the end of the song we're going to take this together the ushers